like to begin by just telling a short story. There was this elderly gentleman who was driving his red Corvette convertible down the freeway going 80 miles per hour. And then he was looking in his rearview mirror and he noticed these red lights. And he panicked and accelerated to 100 miles per hour. Finally, he came to his senses and pulled over. The highway patrol pulled behind him. The trooper got out. He says, I don't understand. You were speeding and you accelerated. And the elderly, elderly gentleman says, Sir, I, I don't know what I was thinking. He says, Okay, I'm just about done with my shift. If you can tell me a reason why you're speeding that I never heard before, I'll let you go. And the elderly man paused a little bit and he said, Well, a number of years ago, my wife ran away with the state trooper, and when I saw the red light, I thought he was bringing her back to me. He said, You're free to go. I want to thank the Lord and Pastor Bruce for allowing me to convey the message this morning. It is a beautiful day. Let me pray. Father, I want to thank you for this moment. And this is all we have is this moment, Lord God. Lord, I thank you that you've taught us how to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. So I'm going to be talking about when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray, he taught them what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And part of this is what I'm going to be talking about today is Matthew 6.13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When I was studying this, one of the first questions that I thought about is if Jesus is instructing us to ask the Father to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Does that imply that He can lead us into temptation? James 1.13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So what temptation is this referring to? What comes to your mind? Is it sexual lust? Is it the temptation to be offended? Is it the temptation to be unforgiving? Is it anger? Judgmentalism? Is it the temptation to gossip or to be jealous? 
God doesn't lead us into sin or temptation. We do. I think this type of temptation can be included in this verse. These things that I've mentioned and perhaps the things that have come to your mind. The commentaries that I read about this, according to these commentaries, the Greeks suggest that the temptation primarily is in reference to trials and suffering. And as I go on, you try to understand why. Because, you know, when you're going through trials and suffering, you are being tempted one way or the other. And it says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, about Jesus. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered. Jesus in Matthew 26, 39, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thou wilt. See, getting through the crucifixion as the Son of God was not a problem for Jesus. He had all the confidence, poor confidence he needed to get through the crucifixion as the Son of God. Because, as he said, he could call legions of angels to destroy his enemies. The challenge for Jesus is getting through the crucifixion as the Son of Man. Because he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Paul, the Apostle Paul, says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7-9. And because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, in other words, being proud, there was given me the thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And although God can divinely intervene in our lives to protect us from temptation, trials, and evil, and you know, I can look back in my life and I can see where he has done that, I think the Scripture pertains to you and me, ourselves. And the most fundamental thing or temptation that you and I have, Bruce has talked about this, it's our claim to our right to ourselves. I can be my own God. And this originated in the Garden of Eden. When God told Adam and Eve, you can eat a any tree in this garden except one, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there was a day when Eve was looking at that tree and Satan says, he doesn't want you to do that because you will be like God. That was her temptation. And that's our temptation to be like God our claim to our right to ourselves. What would have happened if Jesus decided he would not go through the crucifixion? The temptation was, I don't want to go through this. 
I don't want to go through the suffering. You and I, I can relate to the suffering, the physical part, but you and I will never understand what it was like for him to take your sin and my sin on himself. What about Paul? What if he didn't receive the thorn? Jesus knew he needed the thorn, otherwise he would have been a powerful man. What would have happened to Paul if he would have fallen into the temptation of pride? Or after he received the thorn, what would have happened if he became bitter? To be tempted to be bitter. What are the reasons for temptation? There's a number of them that you and I could probably list, but these two come to mind. One is to strengthen our faith. If you go through life and there's nothing to challenge your faith, you're going to be like much. It's the temptations that we are faced with. It's the trials that we are faced with that give us an opportunity to trust in the Lord. We can choose to try to rely on ourselves or on God. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, where it says, No temptation or test has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also that you may be able to endure. The way of escape for me is trusting, depending upon, and committing my life to Jesus. That's the only way that I know of that I can get through temptations or trials. And then, if you haven't asked the question, you need to. Who is in control? I've been around long enough to know that I am definitely not in control. But I do believe that God orchestrates the circumstances of His children's lives. And you may ask, well, where is the freedom of will? The freedom of the will is in the circumstance that you find yourself. You can either be tempted to become bitter, or whatever the temptation is, or to trust in God and understand that He is in control and He is orchestrating your circumstances for His purposes. Secondly, besides temptations being in our lives of strength and our faith, is to become like Jesus. More of Him and less of me. It says that Jesus learned obedience through the things He suffered. Hebrews 5.8 says, Trusting obedience in the message Bible. Trusting obedience. And Jesus says, you and I are going to follow after him. We need to deny ourselves. Now this morning when you got up, did you deny yourself? For you married couples that had that little bit of an argument this morning, which one of you denied yourself? We must deny ourselves, pick up our cross daily, and follow Him. When I deny myself, there's more of Him. There's a greater manifestation of the Spirit of God in me. And when I face the temptation, I can choose to allow the Holy Spirit to work through me, trusting in God, or I can trust in myself. 
Leads not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. Some Bible translations say, deliver us from the evil one. The message Bible says, the devil. Now, Jesus was tempted by the devil, and he responded by the word. Jesus cast out demons. The reality of an evil presence is there. Sometimes I believe we do have direct encounters with the demonic. You can have a sense of a foreboding evil presence. Have you ever been in a situation where the kind of hair stood up on your arm? Sometimes there are direct encounters with evil. You know, one of the spiritual gifts in Corinthians is distinguishing, distinguishing spirits. What kind of spirit is involved in your circumstance? And Paul says, we're not going to be ignorant of the devil's scheme. The devil has a scheme for each of us. My experience has been that evil is manifested mostly through people who sin. Matthew 16, 23 Jesus turned to Peter and he said, Satan, get behind me. The apostles were influenced by evil. Jesus, James, and John in Luke 9, 54, 55 were on their way to Jerusalem going to Samaria and the Samaritans didn't receive Jesus. So James and John had this great idea. Lord, should we call fire down from heaven that they may be consumed? Jesus looked at them and said, you don't know what spirit you are of. And of course, in Luke 22-3, it says that Satan entered Judas. You know, evil eventually killed Jesus. Evil eventually killed all the apostles except one. And he, there was an attempt in his life by an emperor to boil him in oil. And for whatever reason, God must have protected him. That didn't happen. He ended up on the island of Patmos. But Philip and Peter were both crucified. I think it was Bartholomew that was filleted. Some of them were beheaded. And some were pierced with the sword. So evil eventually killed most of the disciples, the original ones, and Jesus Christ. My greatest concern is myself. Not being a vehicle for evil. Keep my heart clean and my spirit right. Jesus said this in Mark 7, 21-23. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornication, Thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. That pretty much incorporates you and me. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of wickedness and darkness, 
But really, do we make that choice to do that when we're tempted? Or do we really wrestle with other people? Cause of temptation. Let's read out of Romans 1, verses 18 to 32 out of the Message Bible. It says, By God's angry displeasure, he wrought as acts of human request and wrongdoing and lying accumulate. As people try to put a cloud over the truth. But the basic reality of God is plain enough. Open your eyes, and there it is. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes and such can't see. Eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of, the, of His divine being. Both yesterday morning and Jerry morning, uh, this, this morning and yesterday morning, Jerry and I were looking at the sunrise. This scripture says, take a, take a time of thoughtfulness in terms of creation. And God will speak to you. God will make himself known to you. You think when you see the sun rise right before your eyes, or if you're on the ocean, if you've ever seen this, where the sun sets, you can actually see the sun going down on the ocean. It's a phenomenal thing. When you look at creation, the beauty of creation, when you look at a fellow human being and how complex and wonderfully made they are, as it says in Psalms 139, you can understand that God is manifesting who He is to each of us. But the Scripture says you need to take some time and be thoughtful about it. So nobody has, an, has a good excuse. What happened was this. People knew God perfectly well, but when they didn't treat him like God, refusing to worship him, they trivialized themselves into silliness and confusion. So there was neither sense nor direction left in their lives. Have you been observing? Have you, have you ever watched jaywalking, Jay Lennon, when he's talking, or Waters World? They ask people simple questions like, who's the Vice President of the United States? What is... I, they don't know. There's a great deal of confusion right now. They pretended to know it all, but were illiterate regarding London. They traded the glory of God who holds the whole world in His hands for cheap figurines you can, you can buy at a roadside stand. So God said, in fact, if that's what you want, that's what you get. It wasn't long before they were living in a pig pen, smeared with silk, filthy inside and out, and all this because they trade the true God for a fake God and worship a God they made instead of a God who made them. The God we bless, the God who blesses us, oh yeah. And who is the biggest God in my life? Is it Jesus Christ or is it myself? That's always the battle. Worst follow, refusing to know God. They soon didn't know how to be human either. Women didn't know how to be women. Men didn't know how to be men. Sexually confused, they abused and defiled one another. Women with women, men with men, all lost 
no love. And they paid for it. Oh, how they paid for it. Entered of God and love godless and loveless wretches. Since they didn't bother to acknowledge God, God quit bothering them and let them run loose. And then all hell broke loose. Rapid evil, grabbing and grasping, vicious backstabbing. They made life hell on earth with their envy, wanton killing, bickering and cheating. Look at them, mean-spirited, venomous, fork-tongued, bad bastards, bullies, swaggerers, insufferable windbags. They keep inventing new ways of breaking lives. They get their parents when they get in the way. Stupid, slimy, cruel, cold-blooded, and it's not as if they don't know better. They know perfectly well they're spitting in God's face, and they don't care. Worse, they hand out prizes to those who do the worst or the worst things best. I've read this scripture a number of different times. You know what I focused on? This part about homosexuality. But that's not, if that's what you're focusing on, like I have, we're missing the point. Because he goes on with a whole bunch of issues when we ignore God. When sin accumulates. And I don't have to point my finger at somebody else, although I have. I have to look at myself. It's the accumulation of lying and mistrust and wrongdoing. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Jerry and I were in California, and the guy who I was his best man 40 years ago, and I haven't talked to him in 15 years, his daughter got married, and so Jerry and I decided to go up to that wedding. When I was talking to my friend, one of the first things he talked about is that his oldest daughter is now gay. She's revealed that she's gay. And he talked about some of the struggles that he had through school. And at the wedding, um, there were a number of gay couples there. And uh, I, I met my friend's daughter again um, and her partner. And I had some great discussions with them. And one thing that was in my heart for them is that there's something missing here. There's something missing. And when I, when I, Jerry and I left, um, both of them gave me a, a great, a, a deep hug. They wouldn't let go. And what I thought about is the love of God touching them. It is not me, it's the love of God. And the conclusion I've come to is this. They just want to be loved. They, they want to be accepted for who they are. I'm not talking about their sexual orientation. I'm talking about how, who they are, who God made them to be. They're looking for unconditional love. Aren't we all? And I believe the reason that we fall into temptation is a lot of times we, we haven't received that day, that moment, the unconditional love of Jesus Christ and really knowing who He is. Last night, I was watching the Passion of Christ. And if you ever watch it, it's sobering. It's just sobering. As a matter of fact, it's so sobering. I didn't think I should bring this uh, sermon to you today with a joke beforehand. I think God told me to lighten up a little bit.
unconditional love. That's all we're looking for. And people don't know it. And there's only one that can give unconditional love, and that's Jesus Christ. The night before we took off to California, we were staying with one of our daughters, Jerry and I. And, of course, the discussion came up about my friend's daughter being gay. And so that was the discussion. And my daughter was asking us about that. I said, you know, the best response that I've ever heard in regards to that sin is by Rave Sakharaj. Thanks to Carrie saying that to me. But he was at a college, and, the, and, and, and he was, he was uh, fielding questions. That question came up to him. And he said this. He said, there isn't a man in here that has not and will not be, or will be, tempted by a beautiful woman. We live in a fallen world, and we have a propensity for a temptation or more than one temptation. Have you ever said that person is a born liar? You're probably not far off the mark. I believe people have a propensity to exaggerate, which is the same thing as lying. Synonym for that is hyperbole. I call it hyperbole. But some people have a propensity to that. I've had a propensity in my life towards anger. And that's, that could be a generational curse. I don't know. But we're all born with a propensity to some form or form of temptation. And that's the way it is with people who think they're homosexual. And as I was describing that to Molly, my daughter, she said, that explains it. Because you have some people who will argue that they're born with it, and you have some people who will say, you choose it. It's both. You are born with a propensity to fall into temptation. And you have your own thing. And you can choose to do that or not. That's why you have some homosexuals, if you will, that are rejected that lifestyle. They've made a choice. That is wrong, and they're no longer going to do it. I think I am guilty of probably one of the worst and most rampant sins in the church and in people. And that's borne out in chapter 2 of Romans, verses 1 and 2. Those people are in a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on the high ground and you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. Think about how serious that is. Every time that I criticize somebody in a judgmental way, putting them down or whatever, with the wrong motive, I'm condemning myself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. 
I'm guilty of that. You know what? I can have a conflict with somebody and to get out of it, I'll start judging somebody else. And that person says, hey, hey, hey. That person's got a problem. I'm not dealing with my issues and this person who's joined in my accusation is not dealing with their issues. I've done it. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds you to what you've done. Judgmentalism, critical judgmentalism, is one of the most rampant temptations that you and I will ever be faced with. It's so easy to slide into that. You can be sitting innocently around a table drinking coffee with people, and how easy it slides in that direction. So how can I respond to temptation or evil? The Word. Jesus, when tempted by the devil, responded with the Word. For ten plus years, I went through a trial where I had a series of temptations. There's a relationship problem where I felt I was being treated unfairly and I know others felt the same way. I want to tell you something about trials and temptations. Sometimes you can't shorten them. They're there for a reason. And I tried to keep the right attitude. I, I would talk to the pastor just to make sure my attitude was right. <clears throat> my godly friend, certainly my wife. Because I wanted a reality checkup. I didn't want to go off into something that was wrong in terms of my attitude. And this lasted 10 plus years. And finally, one Saturday morning, Jerry and I were sitting at the table. And I said, I can't take this anymore. I said, so I, I said, Jerry, let's, let's, let's pray. And I said, Lord, deliver me from evil. Deliver me from this evil. And immediately what came to my mind was Romans 12, 21. It says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I decided to invite this person into my life. I made an extra effort to be kind to this person. I sat down with him and I said, you know, you and I have differences, but I really do love you. And I said, the Lord has shown me and taught me a lot through you. The expression of faith was kind of interesting when I said that. And lady didn't ask me what I was talking about, but you know, I got at least ten good sermons out of those trials. So the temptations that you have, faith, are not only for you, but God uses that to help you to teach others, to help others, because you've experienced it, to encourage others. Again, sometimes you just can't show it in those problems. God uses them for His purposes. <clears throat> the second way of responding to temptation is prayer. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane with Peter, John, and James, he said this, Stay alert, be in prayer, so you don't wander into temptation without even knowing you're in danger. That was my point before. You can enter into temptation 
without even knowing you're, you're, you've fallen into temptation, and then you're in danger because the next thing is sin. Prayer helps. The object of prayer is to know the person you're talking to. And the more you know that person, the less apt I believe you are to fall in temptation. As long as you live, you're going to have temptation. The question is, are you going to fall? The third way of dealing with temptations is discernment. I need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit who God has given me. That is eternal life. It's the life of God in me. It's the Holy Spirit. Hebrews 3, 13 says, Lest any of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I need to be right with God. I need to be right with people. I need to be right with myself. If I'm not, I grieve the Holy Spirit. And my senses become dull. My heart can become hardened. And you've heard me talk about delusions. Why do I always talk about it? Because I suffer from them. And here's a scary part. James said that when you hear the word, it means they don't have to be in church. It can be when you're reading the Bible or if you're, if you're, if you're watching a beautiful sunset and the Lord speaks to you and then you ignore it. You don't do it. He's telling you to do something. And if you don't, what happens is delusion. Because you've disobeyed God. How else can I respond to temptation or evil? The cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's Christ on the cross that has defeated evil and helped you and me overcome evil. Revelation 12 talks about that we've overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The word of testimony is the cross. What Jesus has done for you and I through his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. For those who are faced with chronic temptation or have fallen into temptation, I want you I want to read a story. That will bring out some points in terms of God's mercy. Drink some living water first. <clears throat> Nearly a hundred years ago, the Philadelphia Church in Stockholm, Sweden, sent two missionary couples to the Congo, David and Sidio Flood, along with Joe and Bertha Erickson. They macheted their way through the jungle to establish a mission station. During their first year, they didn't see a single convert. The village was resistant to the gospel because they were afraid of offending their tribal God, but that didn't keep Sabia from sharing the love of Jesus with his five-year-old boy who delivered fresh eggs to their back door every day. Sabia became pregnant long, not long after arriving, but she was bedridden during much of the pregnancy battling malaria. She gave birth to a baby girl, Anna, on April 13, 1923. But Sabia died 17 days later David made a casket and buried his 27-year-old wife on the mountainside overlooking the village. Grief, then bitterness, flooded his heart. Grief is a natural part of life. Bitterness can come in there. But what do you do with the bitterness? 
That's the temptation. David gave his daughter Anna to the Arisons and returned to Sweden with dashed dreams and a broken heart. He would spend the next five decades of his life trying to drown his sorrow with drink. He forewarned those he knew, never to mention God's name in his presence. The Ericsons raised Anna until she was a toddler, but both of them died within three days of each other when the villagers poisoned them to death. Anna was given to an American missionary couple, Arthur and Anna Bird. The Birds renamed their adopted daughter, Agnes, and called her Aggie. They eventually returned to America to pastor church in South Dakota. It's worse than the jungle. After high school, Aggie enrolled at North Central Bible College in Minneapolis. She met and married a fellow student, Billy Hurst. They started a family of their own and served a number of churches as pastors. Then Dr. Hurst became president of Northwest Bible College. On her 25th wedding anniversary, the college gave the Hurst a special gift, a trip to Sweden. Aggie's sole purpose in going was to find her biological father, who had abandoned her 50 years before. They searched Stockholm for five days without a place. Then on the last day before departure, they got a tip that led to the third floor of the ramshackle apartment building. There they found Aggie's dad, who was on his deathbed with a failing nervous. The last words David Flood ever expected to hear were, Papa, it's Anna. And the first words of his mouth were filled with remorse. I never meant to give you away. When they embraced, the 50-year curse of bitterness was broken. Your father and daughter were reconciled that day, and father was reconciled with his heaven father for eternity. When Aggie landed in Seattle the next day, she received news that her father passed away while they were in flight. Now, here's the rest of the story. Five years later, Dewey and Aggie Hurst attended a World Cup Hospital Conference in London, England. 10,000 delegates from around the world gathered at Royal Prince Albert Hall. One of the speakers on opening night was Rulajita Tagora, the superintendent of the Pentecostal Church in Zaire. What caught Aggie's attention was the fact that he was from the region where her parents had been missionaries half a century before. After the message, Aggie spoke to him through an interpreter. She asked if he knew of the village where she was born, and he told her he had grown up in that village. She asked if he knew of the missionaries by the name of Flood. He said, every day I would go to Sylvia Flood's back door with a basket of eggs. And she would tell me about Jesus. I don't know if she had a single convert in all of Africa besides me. Then he added, surely after I accepted Christ to be a guide and a husband left. She had a baby girl named Anna, and I've always wondered what happened to her. When Aggie revealed that she was Anna, Rudita Nagora started to smile. He embraced her sibling separately since birth. Then he said, just a few months ago, I placed flowers on your mother's grave. On behalf of the hundreds of churches and hundreds of thousands of believers in Zaire, thank you for letting your mother die so that so many of us could live. See, God's much bigger than the temptations that we fall into. His mercy is over His judgment. His unconditional love is forever. This man, David's love, was bitter for five decades. He fell into temptation. He fell into sin. But he and his wife had a great act of obedience. 
There were more actions, sure, but this one had a profound effect. When they went to Africa, oh, that act of obedience, one five-year-old boy came to know the Lord. And because of that, there are now hundreds of churches in this nation and hundreds of thousands of believers. God in His mercy, before David Flood died, reunites him with his daughter, and most importantly, breaks the bitterness, if you will, so that he can be reconciled with his eternal father before he died moments later. We always concentrate on the temptation and the sin. But there are acts of obedience that you and I do on a regular basis that when you and I get to heaven like David Flood are going to be amazed at the, the results of those acts of obedience to Jesus Christ. You know, for all of us who are faced with temptation, I don't know where you'll end up, but I can know, I know where you can start, and that's at the cross. There's power in the cross. It's meditating on what Jesus Christ has done. We can take our acts of obedience to the cross. We can take the gifts that God has given us to the cross. We can take our successes to the cross because He's worthy of it. All things are from Him, through Him, to Him. And we can take our temptations to the cross. We can take our failures to the cross. We can take our sin to the cross. Because Jesus died for you and me. That through His shed blood, we have forgiveness of sins. That's why we say it's all about Him. And we have the privilege of being part of His kingdom and be called children of God. Paul said this in 2 Timothy, The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. God will bring you. He, he, he will bring you safely to His kingdom. It's all about Him. It's all about His grace. He said it's finished and you fit into it. It's done with. Every sin that you have committed, every sin you commit, and working it is covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. His mercy endures forever. No matter what you're faced with in terms of trials and temptations, the Lord is for you and is with you. To Him be the glory. To Him be the honor. To Him be the praise. Forever and ever. The Lord bless you and have a great day in Jesus' name. And the one said, Amen. Thank you.